I'm going to ask you this morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 57 through 68. It's 57 through 68 of Matthew chapter 26. If you found your way there, I want to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 through 68. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? You can be seated. It's interesting in American culture that we seem to really love a good courtroom drama. Now, for some of you in the room, you may remember the days of, of Perry Mason and Matlock. But for some of you in the room, you have no idea who those two individuals are. So I will relate to more current trends of Judge Judy and Judge Joe Brown. Uh, it seems that everywhere you look, there's a court case going on. And not only are we attracted to that, but throughout human history, there's always been this, this desire to look upon in history great court cases and trials because I think it's a human nature that we want to see the pursuit of truth, the commitment to finding justice in a situation. But what we find in our text here today is perhaps one of the most well-known trials in human history, but it's a trial that highlights the worst of human nature, and instead of a pursuit of truth and justice, it is a commitment to lies, and ending not in the discovery of truth, but in dreadful corruption. A man by the name of Walter Chandler, who was a former New York bar lawyer, uh, wrote a book one time on the trials of Jesus. And in that book, he said that this trial here, this trial of Jesus, the trial of the Nazarene, he says, was before the high tribunals of both heaven and earth, before the great Sanhedrin, whose judges were the master spirits of a divinely commissioned race, before the court of the Roman Empire that controlled the legal and political rights of men throughout the known world. This was a trial that, had it been publicized, had it not been hidden in secret, but had it been known, would have captured the attention of, of everyone in the Jewish nation. 
Because of the hope, high-profile nature of it. Because of who they were trying, Jesus Christ, the one who had, who had been preaching, the one who had been teaching and healing the sick and raising the dead, the one who was the Messiah, the Son of God. So it was a trial that, as I said, ends not in justice, but in corruption. And as we look at this trial this morning, the first thing that I want you to notice is there is an unfolding that takes place. An unfolding, and it happens there in verse 57. It says, those who seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Now, it's important to understand that through the culmination of all of the gospel accounts, we understand that Jesus had, in fact, two trials that occurred during this night. The first was a Jewish trial, and the second was a Roman trial. The Jewish trial had three parts, and in fact, so did the Roman trial. For the Jewish trial, first Jesus appeared before Annas, the former high priest. Then here, as Matthew picks up, before Caiaphas, the current high priest. Then there was a period of time where they broke away. And then in the early morning hours of Friday, they gathered back again together again to try Jesus the final time. And then before his Roman trial, Jesus first appeared before Pilate. Pilate then sent him over to Herod, and then Herod, unwilling to rule in this matter, sent him back to Pilate, who finally sentenced Jesus to death. Now, it's interesting when all of this is unfolding and occurring, this is happening in the wee hours of the morning. You remember, Jesus had just been arrested there in the garden. So most commentators put the series of events that we're looking at here in this passage sometime between 12 o'clock and 3 in the morning. This is not the typical time that most people are practicing business. It's not the typical time that most people are doing things. In fact, probably many of you grew up hearing your parents tell you that anything that was done late at night was probably not being done for the good or for the better. People do things at night because they try to hide them. They try to keep them in secret. And this is, in fact, exactly what was happening here in this moment. The Sanhedrin did not want it to be discovered by the general public what was happening, and so they were doing this under cover of night. Spurgeon said that even with the late hour of the morning, the hatred that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had, he said they were only too willing to sit up late to judge the Lord of glory and to put the King of Israel to shame. But what we see in this unfolding is that the hatred that the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priest had towards Jesus was a long brewed hatred. It wasn't something that just popped up overnight. It wasn't something that just all of a sudden in the days leading up when Judas came to them and said, I will betray him to you for 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't that just in that moment they decided, okay, now we should put Jesus to death. Now, if we go back through the gospel accounts, we see that over and over throughout the history of Jesus's ministry, as soon as they realized who Jesus was, as soon as they realized the claims that Jesus was making and the power that he was accumulating unto himself by all of these people who were following him, they desired to have him put away. Matthew chapter 12 said the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Luke chapter 6, they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Luke chapter 19, but the chief priests and scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And I think in one of the most profound passages of Scripture, speaking of the Pharisees and their hatred of Jesus, occurs in John chapter 11, right after the resurrection of Lazarus. Remember, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and all the people were just astonished and and coming to Jesus, desiring to know more about who He was and this power that He possessed and the teaching that was unlike anything they had ever heard before. 
And so the chief priests and the Pharisees brought together a council, and they said, what are we, what are we going to do about this guy? If we allow him to continue, uh, everybody's going to believe in him. They're going to follow after him, and the Romans will come in and take over the nation again. They were worried not about really the fact of what Jesus was teaching, so much of the fact that they were going to lose power. They were worried that he was going to come in and steal away what they had unrightfully stolen from God. They had established themselves, in a sense, as, as the God of the, of the Jewish people, putting a burden upon them with the laws and the additional things that they had, the sanctions that they had placed on them. But it's interesting, right there in the middle of this passage in John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest who's mentioned here in our passage this morning, says this. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that is it expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish? See, in this moment, what Caiaphas is saying, he's like, listen, brothers, he's like, I know what we have to do. We have to kill this Jesus. He said, it would be better for us to kill one man and let him die than for the whole nation to perish. He said, it'd be better for us to, uh, to execute this Jesus, to get him off of the scene, than for this this rabble rouser to continue raising to, to continue to raise up people and to cause an uprising and then have the Romans come in and to punish all of us as a nation. Again, it was a very a very selfish and inwardly driven statement. But what Caiaphas didn't know in this moment was that he was actually prophesying about exactly what Jesus was going to do. Because the scripture goes on to say, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas says, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Brothers and sisters, what good news that Jesus came to die so that we would not perish. So Caiaphas is speaking this out of anger. He's speaking this out of, uh, out of fear of what Jesus is going to do if he continues to rise to power. But by God's providence and grace, he is speaking the very words and truth of the gospel, speaking a prophecy about Jesus that would very soon come to pass. So this was a hatred that had been long brewing. And so what they find here is a carefully laid out plan. Because when they come to seize Jesus and they take him away to Annas first and then to Caiaphas, this was, again, not just a haphazard thing. Now, the Mosaic law laid out very stringent prescriptions for what the Sanhedrin was and what they were to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, God gives a prescription. He says, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Now listen to what he goes on to say. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So God commands them to, in each town, establish judges and officers that they might judge rightly the matters that would arise amongst the people. Now, the Jews had determined that in every community that had 120 men in it, then they would establish there a local council. So you had local Sanhedrins in the smaller towns, and those Sanhedrins consisted of about 23 members. But here, the great Sanhedrin, which was in Jerusalem, was consisted of 70 members plus the high priest, which made 71. It was always an odd number to ensure uh, that there would not be a tie vote. 
Now, the Sanhedrin had a small amount of power. Their powers were much greater in the Old Testament than they had come later of the time of when Jesus was alive. The Roman government had limited them somewhat in the ability and the powers that they had. They did not have the power to execute anybody of their own accord. It had to be approved by the Romans. The only provision that the Romans gave them was if a Gentile came into certain parts of the temple and desecrated the temple, they could execute that person without permission from the Roman government. But the members of this Sanhedrin council were supposed to be chosen by their maturity and their wisdom, as it was laid out there in the Scriptures, men who would be upright, who would not take bribes, who would judge rightly and justly. But by the time Jesus' day had arrived, it had developed much more into an appointment by political favoritism. So whoever had the most friends and whoever had wielded the most influence, whoever maybe had the most money, they were the ones who were put on to the Sanhedrin. Herod himself had influence oftentimes into who would be removed and who would be placed on to the Sanhedrin. And sometimes even the Romans themselves would try to exert control. But this was all part of a carefully orchestrated plan. Now, John helps us to understand that before Jesus comes before Caiaphas here in verse 57, that first he was taken to Annas, the former high priest. John chapter 18 tells us, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. Now, Annas had been the high priest about for a four or five year period, about 20 years prior to this moment. And he was then removed from power because the Romans and the, uh, had this ability to come in and they could remove who they wanted as high priest and place somebody else in there because, again, it was a position of power. They didn't want things to get too far out of control. And the Romans feared that Annas was accumulating too much power up unto himself. He had too much weight and wielding influence over the people. And so they removed him and placed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, as the current high priest. So Caiaphas, again, was... Annas' son-in-law. Now, neither man brought honor to the office which they held. They were both known for their mean-spiritedness, their greed, and their hungry power. So the soldiers first take Jesus to Annas, the former high priest. Most commentators agree that what this was was a moment that allowed Caiaphas to assemble the rest of the Sanhedrin together there at his house for this trial that was going to take place. So he goes before Annas, and John lays that out. I would encourage you to read the account from John. We don't have time to look at all of it this morning. Uh, but as he's standing there, he, Annas asks Jesus several questions. And Jesus responds back. And, and Annas is infuriated at what he said. But again, he has no power or ability there except the influence he holds over his son-in-law. And so after a moment there, then he's sent off to Caiaphas. Now, the plan is in place here to do whatever is necessary to see that this troublemaker Jesus is dealt with. They'd already laid out the plan that they were going to do whatever it took. And they only had a limited amount of time. They had to get all of this accomplished in the middle of the night before daybreak. Because they knew if day broke and the people realized what was happening, if they realized what was taking place, that there would be an uprising. They feared an uprising of the people themselves. They feared an uprising of Jesus' disciples. If they figured out what was going on, that they might try to amass a group of people and to come and to be involved. And the reason it was so time sensitive was because they knew that if they wanted Jesus dead and they wanted it done in a quick amount of time, they had to have a trial immediately. Because after the trial was over, if they sentenced him to death, they had to then get approval from Pilate, from the Romans, in order for Jesus to be sentenced to death. The interesting thing about 
what's happening in this moment in this carefully orchestrated plan is that they were willing to transgress their own law. They were willing to break their own rules in order for this to happen. Now, the Sanhedrin were expected to abide by a governing principle. And that principle was the Sanhedrin is to save and not destroy life. The layout in the Old Testament and then in all of the books of Jewish history laid out that the Sanhedrin was supposed to actually be a group that, that, that emulated mercy and emulated justice. And so when you went before the Sanhedrin, it wasn't to be a fearful thing. It was to be a thing of, of, you know, that, well, these men are going to strive at their very best to show mercy and justice and truth. But all through the events of this night, we see that they were willing, driven by their bloodlust and hatred of Christ, filled with the spirit of Satan, they were perfectly willing to not only disobey and bend, but to break their own laws and traditions. The law said for the Sanhedrin that when someone came before them, that in order for a, a sentence to be accomplished, that they had to have at least two witnesses. And those two witnesses not only had to agree on what was being said, but they also had to be able to point to the point to the, uh, the, the place, the time, and the date of when those things occurred. And if they could not point to the time, the place, and the date of which those things occurred, they were not considered a viable witness. And a person who gave a false testimony would suffer the punishment of the accused if the accused was found guilty. So if you had someone on trial for murder and someone came in and they bore false witness against this person saying, oh yes, I remember seeing this event happen on such and such a day and they lied about what they saw and then it was found out that they lied, they would suffer the punishment of the person who was accused. So if that punished person was sentenced to death, this false witness would also be sentenced to death. Now, if the Sanhedrin determined that a sentence of death was to be carried out on someone, it could not happen until three days after of the trial and the judgment. And during those three days, the members of the Sanhedrin were supposed to fast. They were supposed to fast so that they could pray about and seek God's face because they didn't want to take a life unnecessarily. So if someone was found guilty, they were sentenced to death, the Sanhedrin would go into a period of a three-day fast to seek the Lord. And it also gave three more days for other witnesses to step up and, and maybe prove the innocence of the person. Again, it goes to show that the Sanhedrin was there to develop and to show mercy and justice. So this three-day period was open-ended so that that person could find other witnesses, find other people who would testify to the innocence and not their guilt. And in fact, even on the very way to be punished. They had a soldier walking with them, and if somebody came up and says, uh, I have new testimony to give, or if the person who was accused says, oh, I finally remembered something that I didn't say in my trial, they were to stop the march to the execution. They would turn around and go back to the Sanhedrin and have one more opportunity to present their case. This period of three days in fasting also prohibited the Sanhedrin from holding a trial during a feast because they could not fast during the feast time. Which shows us again what is happening during this weekend. This is the weekend of Passover. There was always a presumption of evidence. Great care was always given to the accused for his defense. No criminal trial, according to Jewish tradition for the Sanhedrin, could begin or continue into the night. When it came down to the moment of which the decision was being made, the Sanhedrin voted from the youngest member to the oldest member in order that the younger members might not be influenced and swayed by the older members. 
It's interesting to note, this will come into play later, that a unanimous vote by the Sanhedrin meant that the accused person was to be set free because they viewed if there was a unanimous vote, then the Sanhedrin was lacking mercy and lacking grace in that situation. So what we understand here in this moment, in this carefully orchestrated plan, and in this willingness to break their own laws and tradition, is that the Sanhedrin and the chief priests were afraid. They were angry. They were threatened. And they had been exposed. And they had no intention of giving Jesus a fair trial. At no point in this entire situation did they ever think, well, let's bring Jesus in and talk to him and find out the truth. Let's, let's, let's talk to him and find out exactly what he stands for. Maybe we've misunderstood him. No, before this trial even started, they had already hardened their hearts to the point that there was no intention of them ever giving Jesus the opportunity to speak the truth. Just like many people today, many people have hardened their hearts to the truth of who Jesus is, and they will not give the message of the gospel the time of day. They will not allow the truth of who Jesus is to even pass through their ears and into their mind. So we see the unfolding of the events, but secondly, I want you to notice the straggler. Verse 58, I was sharing with Pastor Ben this morning, I'd never really considered this verse very much. It seems to almost just be a passing verse just to kind of establish the location of Peter in these moments. But there's really a lot in this verse. Really, we could almost pull this verse out and preach an entire message on it. And so I will attempt my best to not get sidetracked this morning. But look at verse 58. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. The first thing we see in this passage about Peter is his position. Notice it says that he was following him at a distance. And it says that he arrives in the courtyard of the high priest. Now, John tells us that the way that Peter made it into this area, because it wasn't an area that was just open to anybody, but John, uh, or one of the disciples, and most people believe it was John, was known to the high priest and so was allowed to go in. And so he saw Peter standing at the door outside. And so this other disciple went and spoke to them, spoke to the doorkeeper and allowed Peter to come inside. So this whole time, Peter's following the crowd at a distance. He's he's pursuing them behind, but he's not getting close enough. Because in this moment, where should Peter have been? Well, according to his own testimony, he should have been side by side with Jesus. According to his, his own vocal testimony, he said, Jesus, I will not desert you. If everyone else deserts you, I will not desert you. In fact, I will die alongside of you. But yet here in this moment, as Jesus is being led off to this mock trial, Peter is staying close enough to console his own soul, but not close enough to be in any danger himself. He's following Jesus from a distance. One commentator said this, he says, many in this imitate Peter. They're afraid to follow the Savior closely. They fear danger, ridicule, or persecution. They follow him, but it's at a great distance. So far that it's difficult to discern that they are in the train, and that they are his friend at all. Religion requires us to be near to Christ. We may measure our piety by our desire to be with him, to be like him, and by our willingness to follow him always through trials, contempt, persecution, and death, end quote. So Peter is far away from Jesus in this moment. He's following him at a distance just 
to see exactly what's happening. But the second thing we see here in this passage is that he keeps some rather interesting company. Because had Peter been with Jesus, he would have been in the company of the Master. He would have been the company of the Messiah. And although it would have placed him in much more danger, right? If he had followed along with Jesus when he was arrested, uh, Peter probably knew and understood that after they tried Jesus, perhaps Peter might have been thrown into prison as an associate of Jesus. He might not have lost his life here in this very moment, but he might have been arrested and put into prison as just an associate, as a co-conspirator. But had he been beside Jesus... His mind would have been focused on the truth. Had he been beside the master, his mind would have been focused on the things that were really important. His mind would have been focused and his mind would have kept him from doing the things that we find him doing in the following passage that Pastor Ben will look at next Sunday. Because notice it says that he came in and he sat down with the officers. He's really sitting down with the officers and the slaves of of the high priest. He's sitting out in the crowd of those who are gathered there to watch this. Now, this is happening not in the proper place, which is the first point we see here of how they're willing to, uh, to break their own laws. This was not happening in the typical place of where these trials were supposed to happen. It was actually happening in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house. And so here they are gathered together. And Simon Peter is not sitting with his master, but sitting with the servants and the slaves and the officers of the high priest. Spurgeon said, when a servant of Christ by his own choice sits with servants of the wicked, sin and sorrow speedily follow. Now, Peter should have been aware of this. Remember what Jesus told him in Luke chapter 22? He says, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And it was at that moment that Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. But in this moment, where does Peter find himself? Not again beside the master, but with the servants. Psalm chapter 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Peter's denial that would happen in the next verses come partially because of the company that he's keeping. There's an element, I think, that you can see very clearly of, of what we would term in our modern terminology, peer pressure. Here is Peter, surrounded by all of these people who are opposed to Jesus, surrounded by all these people who want to see this trial take place, want to see this man put to death. And so Peter here, in this moment of weakness, in this moment of frailty, why? Because he's not with Jesus. In this moment of frailty, why? Because he did not heed the words of Jesus to watch and to pray and to prepare himself. Jesus would go, I mean, Peter would go on to deny Jesus three times. It says that his purpose there was to see the outcome. But in this moment, he doesn't watch him pray. He doesn't go to his master, even pushing through the crowds in the moment to stand beside him or get even close enough to where he can be visibly identified with him. But he sits back just to see what's going to happen. Peter, no doubt at this moment, understands and assumes correctly that Jesus is going to die. And he's given up his hope. So there's an unfolding of the events. There's the straggler we see in certain Simon Peter's life. But now I want you to notice the testimony of the trial. Look at verse 59. 
It says the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. There's a pursuit of falsehood in the testimony. Now, as you remember, I said that by law, there were two witnesses required to sentence someone to death. And so the Sanhedrin knew if they were going to get this death sentence approved by the Roman government, that this was one place that they were not able to bend the rules. They, they couldn't go to the Roman government and say, we want to, to, to condemn this man to death because they knew what was going to be asked. Do you have two witnesses? Do you have those who would stand in accusation against this man, Jesus? So this was one place they couldn't bend the rules. They had to find two corroborating witnesses to confess or to witness Jesus's crime or supposed crimes. The word that is used here by Matthew that they sought or that they sought out these um, or obtaining false testimony means a protracted search. It means a long drawn out thing. So they were trying to find anyone and everyone that they could, that might be willing to perjure themselves to make the case. They were no doubt going out and just trying to find anybody who could say, hey, do you, do you remember Jesus saying anything that we might be able to accuse him of? No doubt there were, may have been even more bribes taking place that they were going out and saying, listen, we'll give you this amount of money if you'll come in and say that Jesus said these things. Because again, these were men, wicked men driven by wicked desires. They were willing to do whatever it took in order to tarnish the name of Jesus and in order to accomplish their desires. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised in the world in which we live when wicked people use wicked means to tarnish the name of the gospel. The hatred of Jesus is so strong that people are willing to lie in order that the gospel might be quenched in their minds. If the Sadducees, the, the highest ranking religious group of the day, was willing to blatantly lie about Jesus, we should not be surprised when people lie about us. And I think this will become ever more clear in the days ahead for us as Christians. Because we live in a nation that is becoming less and less comfortable with the message of the gospel. Our nation was built upon Christian principles and for a long time was, for the most part, a Christian nation. And then it changed into a nation that tolerated Christianity. But we are now at a post-Christian age in America that does not tolerate any longer the teachings of the Scripture as society has it. They hate what the Scripture teaches. They hate everything that Jesus stands for. And so in their minds, they're willing to do whatever it takes. I remember... Very clearly, a few years ago, some of my friends who used to preach on college campuses, who suffered false accusations from people on the college campus about the things that they were saying and doing solely because these people hated the message that they were preaching. And thanks be to God that these individuals had video camera footage as they were recording what they were doing that day that proved their innocence. But these people were willing to just blatantly lie in order that these Christians might be kicked off campus and that the preaching might stop. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised of those things. So here are the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, all of these gathered together seeking someone who might oppose Jesus, someone who might testify 
as to his wickedness, as to his sin. But they could find none. And the reason they could find none was because Jesus had never done anything wrong. The reason they could find none is because Jesus had never sinned. He had never done anything deserving of a crime, of a trial. He'd never done anything deserving of punishment. And he surely had never done anything deserving of death. And Matthew tells us that finally at some moment, by some means, they were able to find two that came forward. And the accusation that they said is there in verse 61. This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Mark's account says that the other witness said that Jesus told them, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now, what were Jesus' actual words? Because Jesus did say something similar to this. He said something like this in John chapter 2, verses 19. Jesus answered him and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But John is very clear that he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was not talking about the physical temple. Now, although the destruction of the physical temple was going to come in AD 70, in this moment when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he was talking about his physical body, him as the temple of God, that if you destroy it, then in three days I will rise from the dead. Now, what's interesting to note is that the Sadducees, I mean, the, the Sanhedrin knew this. They knew what Jesus was saying here when he said, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. Because you remember, when they asked for the guards, they said, this man has said that he would rise from the dead. They understood. They knew what Jesus was saying. But yet, now that they had somewhat cooperating witnesses, they were going to use this as their moment. Because notice... The two witnesses can't even agree on what Jesus said in this moment. Because Matthew's witness says that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple. And Mark's witness said, I will destroy the temple. So even in those two statements, they don't, they don't corroborate exactly, but it was enough for them to say, yes, now we have our two witnesses. Now we can proceed forward with the trial. So it was a testimony was given. But now in verse chapter, excuse me, in verses 62 to 64, I want you to notice the proclamation that is made. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Son of God. We see Jesus pictured in two ways here in this passage. First, as the silent lamb. Jesus remained silent in the face of false accusations. Jesus had no reason to answer false accusations because he had done nothing wrong. And Jesus understood and knew there was no desire or willingness to hear the truth. We should not think that in this moment, had Jesus opened his mouth and tried to defend himself, that it would have been received with any kind of warm reception. Because they had already decided what they were going to do. They had already purposed in their hearts that they were going to kill Jesus. They weren't asking him this, they weren't asking for a response to find the truth. They were asking for a response to find further reasons to punish him. Jesus, again, had never broken or transgressed God's law. Jesus remained silent in this moment 
so not as to alter the necessary course of events and in the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Isaiah chapter 42 Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. Jesus here is fulfilling the prophecy by not responding to these false accusations. By not standing up and demanding anything. He just sits there as the silent lamb. But also in this same moment, something changes. And Jesus, instead of being the silent lamb, then becomes the vocal Messiah. And the difference happens there at the end of verse 63. Where the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas, in his frustration, demanded a response from Jesus by placing him under oath. At this moment, what he's saying is, is I'm placing you under, you have to respond to this by the Spirit of the living God. By the living God, you must answer whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the way that Caiaphas phrased this question is also interesting because he phrased it in such a way as to not allow any outs here. Because it's interesting that for someone just to claim to be the Messiah was not a punishable by death situation. There were many people who had come and claimed to be the Messiah, and people looked at that and they said, well, time will tell whether you are the Messiah or not. We'll give it some time and we'll see what happens. And it was also not a way to be punishable by death to be called the Son of God because the Pharisees and the religious leaders had already been angry at Jesus before for calling himself the Son of God, and he pointed back to the Old Testament where it said that the people of Israel were called the sons of God. But the way that Caiaphas phrases this in this moment leaves no question as to what he's asking Jesus. He says, tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. You must answer this now. Before God alone, are you the Messiah? And the way Jesus answers here is a little uh, different than how we would understand it in our English language. He says, you have said it yourself. Now, he's not saying in such a way, it's like, well, that's what you say. It was a phraseology to say, basically, it is true. You have said it, and what you have said is truth. But Jesus didn't stop in that moment. It really honestly would have been enough for him to just say, yes, what you have said is true. I am the Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus goes on in this moment to say, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus here gives three descriptions of himself. And he talks about what the Sanhedrin would soon see about who he was and how they would soon understand that he truly was the Messiah. He uses this designation, the Son of Man. It's used throughout the Scriptures. And and by making this claim, Jesus is making clear, really for the very first time, a claim to direct deity. Jesus had referenced it oftentimes with some people. He had had mentioned it in conversations, but here for the very first time in public, Jesus stands up and declares Himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God. It was well understood 
by those who were gathered round. It was well understood by Caiaphas. Jesus goes on to say that you'll not only see me, the Son of Man, sitting, he says, sitting at the right hand of power. Now, the word power used there was a Jewish reverential expression. You know, the Jewish people didn't use the sacred name of God, and so they had many other words that they would use in place of God's sacred name. And one of those words was this word for power. So Jesus is saying that after I ascend into heaven, I'm going to take my position at the right hand of God in a position of power and authority. It's an allusion to Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Very soon, the Sanhedrin would kill Jesus in their, in their minds. They thought they would be free of his power and his influence. But what Jesus is helping them to understand here is that by his death, By His resurrection, by His ascension, and then by His gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus would continue to be visible to them in the actions and the preaching of the apostles in the early church. He says, you think you're going to get rid of me now, but He said, what's coming you're not even prepared for. Jesus was one man, but the power and the authority that He was going to give to His disciples would spread not just in Jerusalem, but through the entirety of the world. Why? Because Jesus was now seated in this position of power that God had given to him. And then he says, you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. And this statement really has two fulfillments. One, they would see Jesus' presence in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. We talked about that uh, several months ago when we looked at Matthew chapter 24. That Jesus came in presence as he destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and that, that Jerusalem was taken over by the Romans but also His arrival and power at the second coming. This was a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And He came up to the Ancient of Days, and He was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So in this moment, what Jesus does with this response, again, He doesn't just respond in the affirmative, He responds in the affirmative and then gives this clear picture of who He is and what's going to happen, which left those standing around Jesus with only two choices. They could believe Him and in that moment fall down and worship Him as the true Son of God, or they could reject Him and move forward with their decision to kill Him. And we know the decision that they made. They made the decision to move forward in their hatred, their hearts being so hardened by sin, so hardened by hate, so hardened by pride and jealousy and by Satan himself that they continued with this wicked plan. Brothers and sisters, there are still only two responses to the proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you're a Christian, then you have made your decision. You've made a decision to follow after Christ, to believe Him and who He is, to believe His proclamation here that He is seated in a position of power and that one day He will return again on the clouds of heaven. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, there are only two responses before you this morning. One is to fall down on your face and to worship Him or to harden your heart and to reject Him and to find yourself in a place of judgment before Him. 
So there's a proclamation. But now I want you to notice in verses 65 to 66, the assumption. It says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. What we see in this moment really is an act of hypocrisy. Because the high priest tore his robe, and the tearing of a robe in the Old Testament uh, was really a sign of sorrow or horror or religious outrage. But in fact, the Leviticus law for the high priest lays out that the high priest is actually not even supposed to tear his robe. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10 says, The priest who is the highest among his brothers, continues on, says, Who has been consecrated to wear the garment shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Now, by the time in Jesus' day, they had given certain provisions and allowances for moments like, supposed moments like this, where someone blasphemed the name of God or did something that caused such great horror or outrage. They would tear their robe as this sign of distress. But what's so hypocritical about this moment is the high priest is not tearing his robe because he's indignant over what Jesus said. He's tearing his robe more in a sign of victory. It's like, we've done it. We don't have to worry about this anymore. We have finally found something that we can point to Jesus and say, He is deserving of death. So they had a false hope of victory. In their minds, by what Jesus had said, He could now be accused of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is not a term that we use in common vernacular today, or sometimes maybe as a, as a byword for something, but it's not something that we use very frequently. So I wanted to give a really good definition, and I found it as I was studying this week. So listen to this very carefully. In the Bible, to blaspheme is fundamentally to dishonor, defame, or revile God himself, and consequently to speak or behave in those ways towards God's name, his dwelling, his angels, his human creatures who are made in his image, his word, his land, his chosen people, or their authorized leaders. Oftentimes when we think of blasphemy today, we think of someone using God's name as a curse word. And that's true. That is a blasphemy of God's name. But there are many other ways that people blaspheme God. You can blaspheme God by your actions. You can blaspheme God by your denials of His truth. You can blaspheme God by the way that you treat other Christians. You can blaspheme God by the way that you treat His Word. And so they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. But the interesting thing is here that Jesus has not purposely has not said anything that could genuinely be accused of blasphemy by the biblical definition. But by their own standard, they thought that they had found a way. By their own standard, they're celebrating here in this moment because now we have something. We don't even have to worry about the two false witnesses anymore. Now we have Jesus' own words that we can take before Pilate and we can accuse Jesus of blasphemy. It was a verdict that was collective. Because when the high priest says, what do you think? They all answered, he deserves death. Now, remember what we said a little earlier? That according to Jewish custom, that if the Sanhedrin ruled unanimously, what was to happen? Well, the accused was to be set free. But this again shows us in this moment that of their hatred for Jesus, they were willing to bypass every rule and regulation. They all wanted Jesus dead. Now, this was not a sentencing. This was just a verdict. They had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. 
they had to have the Roman government to find down the verdict. But remember again, what did the law say? That if a sentencing came down, if a, verdict, if a verdict came down and a person was found guilty, how many days did they have to wait until the sentence could be carried out? They had to wait three days. But they were not going to allow that to happen. Because to wait that long would put them in danger of the crowds. To put, wait that long would put them in the danger of Jesus' disciples. And so the sentencing would happen in that second meeting before the Sanhedrin later in the morning, before they would be, Jesus would be taken to Pilate. The last thing I want you to notice in this text, we've seen the unfolding of the events, the straggler named Peter, the testimony, the falsehood, the proclamation, the assumption. And now I want you to notice the ironic Verse 67 and 68. Then they slapped in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? We can see the true heart of man here. Because in yet another disobedience of Jewish custom, those gathered at Caiaphas' house took it upon themselves to begin to punish Jesus in the immediate. Instead of waiting for a sentencing to happen, instead of waiting for it to be carried out, they decided that this was a moment that they could go ahead and begin to carry out a punishment upon Jesus. Some commentators fear or, or, or some eyes that it might have been because they were worried that perhaps the Roman government wouldn't give them the approval to have Jesus put to death. And they didn't want to miss an opportunity to have their hands on Jesus and to despise him. But we shouldn't be surprised at the actions of evil men when faced with the truth of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself in the scriptures had predicted this very moment. Psalm chapter two, 20, excuse me, Psalm chapter twenty-two, verses six and eight. He says, "But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag the head, saying, "Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let Him rescue him, because He delights in him." Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise again. Luke chapter 18, he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And then Isaiah chapter 50, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. It's ironic here. Because Jesus had been accused of blasphemy. They're going to sentence him to death. And here in this moment, they're punishing him for his crime of blasphemy. They're slapping him with their open hands. They're punching him with their fists. They're spitting in his face, which was the most degrading thing in Jewish culture. And really, in a sense, it's the same thing in our days today. I don't think any of us, if we were walking down the street, somebody walked up to us and spit us at us in the face, we would be happy about it. It's a sign of, of degradation. It's a sign of, 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 of just pure hatred towards somebody. But what's ironic about this is that those who are punishing Jesus for the crime of blasphemy are in fact the ones who are guilty of blasphemy themselves. The very one who would die for their sins is suffering such shame, humiliation, and violence. They're spitting in his very face. 
Jesus was accused of blaspheming God, but here we see true blasphemy in action. For if Jesus is the true Messiah, and we know that He is, then it's the Sanhedrin who are blaspheming God. Why? Because they're ridiculing Christ. They're making up lies about Him. They're accusing Him falsely. They're dishonoring the Son of God by spitting upon Him and hitting Him. And if they're dishonoring the very Son of God, then who are they also dishonoring? They're dishonoring the Father who sent Him. And they're dishonoring the Holy Spirit who empowered Him. So in the culmination of all this moments, what we find is, is that Jesus still stands above as completely innocent and worthy of no punishment. And that the very accusation they bring against Him is what they are committing in the very end. It is they who deserve to die, not Jesus. But Jesus submits Himself. He humbles Himself because He knows what it is that He's come to do. Remember Jesus' final words on the cross? It's always been so profound to me. When you think about what Jesus has endured in the preceding 36 to 48 hours before His crucifixion. The betrayal of Judas. The mockery of a trial here before Annas and before Caiaphas and then before Pilate. The lies that were told against Him. The abandonment of His disciples. Being spit upon. Being beat with fists and slapped with hands. Being whipped with a cat of nine tails, beaten with rods, forced to carry his cross, mocked as he hangs there, naked before the world. And Jesus looks down at all of those people who had done all of those evil and wicked things to him and then says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is this. Is that Jesus still today is that same humble, that same compassionate Savior. We can very easily look at what happened in this text this morning and think, how wicked, how evil, how debased do people have to be? And it is true. The things that they did to Christ here are, are, are horribly heinous. But brothers and sisters, you and I are just as guilty in our hatred towards God. We may not have spit in Jesus' physical face, but we have spit in His face nonetheless. In our actions and in our thoughts and in our deeds. But aren't you glad this morning that Jesus looked upon us as His children and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And if you're here this morning and you never professed faith in Christ, you do not have a relationship with Christ, maybe this morning you look at your own life and you think, how could God ever forgive me? How could Jesus ever forgive me for the things that I've done? Because that's just who He is. He is a God who is rich and abundant in mercy and grace. And this morning, if that's you, the Scripture says that if you will confess your sins to Him and put your faith and trust in Him, that He will grant you forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The same way that He forgave Peter for his denial of Christ. 
The same way that he forgave the thief on the cross who was at one moment mocking him, but then all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, this is different. This man does not deserve to die. This man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus said, what? Today you shall be with me in paradise. And all of those who would come after Many who had no doubt had some part in the events of the day. Those who had come to faith in Christ when the church began to grow in Acts chapter 2 found the true forgiveness of Christ that was available through putting their trust in Him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank You for the example of Christ. Lord, of His humility to submit to Your will. Lord, of His humility to suffer on our behalf. Lord, of His humility to be spat upon and to be mocked and to be ridiculed. To accomplish Your purpose in His life. To go to the cross and die that we may know forgiveness of sin. Father, we also thank you for the example, Lord, of Jesus' boldness in this passage where he speaks truth when truth needs to be spoken. We're thankful for the truth of who Christ is, that he is the Son of Man, the Messiah, and that he is now seated in the right hand of power. Seated beside you at your right hand on the throne, ruling and reigning in this world. And that, Father, one day he is coming again. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by this passage to live, Lord, lives that are victorious because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Seeing, Lord, his willingness to submit to your will, Father, may we be willing to submit to your will as well. Father, guide our hearts and our minds this morning as we prepare ourselves to come to your table and to meet with you there. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name.